I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. On this episode of Newt's World, we're going to talk about reimagining dinosaurs. I think it's really important both because I love dinosaurs, but also because it reminds us that science is constantly evolving, constantly learning new things, and constantly having to challenge itself. We're really fortunate in that we have a terrific guest, Michael Greshko, who's the author of the National Geographic Magazine October cover story, Reimagining Dinosaurs, which I recommend very, very highly. I think if you want to see it, Visit natgeo.com slash dinos. It's terrific. Now, this is your first National Geographic magazine cover story, Michael. Tell us a little bit about your background and how this came about. Well, first off, thank you so much for having me. This piece is and the culmination of several years of covering advances in dinosaur paleontology as a beat reporter. My background is I started in the sciences while an undergraduate studying paleoecology. So if you give me the tooth of an ancient mammal and the right equipment, I can tell you something about what it ate and the climate it lived in while it was alive. I then went from that path and kind of turned into journalism and eventually found myself in the fortunate position of joining National Geographic Science Desk, where I was able to draw on my paleontological training to write about all the great advances in paleontology, including dinosaurs. For those who follow this news, such as yourself, the pace of discovery 
in the field and the pace of, of innovation in the field in terms of drawing on new and different scientific techniques. I mean, it's so much to keep up with in the most exciting of ways. And it got to a point where my editor and I, you know, kind of turned to each other and realized that now was the time to provide kind of the overview, the framework, the synthesis for our readers and for the public as a whole. And so that's where we kind of hit on this idea for this cover story. And it was such a pleasure to report out and to be able to give that to our readers. As you put this cover story together, which is a very good story, by the way. Thank you. What were the really big surprises to you since you've been sort of following the field? But what hit you that when you had a chance to step back a half step and think about it? One of the things that was clear going into it was that the pace of discovery of new fossil material was going to be an important part of the story. I mean, much of the weekly coverage is, oh, well, this new type of tyrannosaur was found. Day to day, it's a lot of this new genus was discovered. But to take a step back and actually look at the sweep and scale of the discovery of new material was like really shocking. It's like on average, paleontologists are describing something like 40 to 50 new genera of fossil dinosaur a year. And that's been sustained as a pace for like more than a decade. If, if I can simplify, it seems to me you have more people studying paleontology in more places with dramatically better technology. The combination of those three that has led to our mapping of dinosaurs and our sense of how really dramatically diverse they were, plus their relatives, the sort of non-dinosaur things that were hanging out in the same time period. Oh, absolutely. It's more people looking in more places and the widespread adoption of all these different technologies that aren't necessarily developed for paleontology, but that paleontology can take advantage of. I mean, one key example here is CT scanning, right? Developed in a medical context, but as the price of those machines has fallen, as they've become more globally accessible and widespread, what was once a novelty 30 years ago is now a common practice. I mean, paleontology PhD students are being trained on this as a matter of course. And that widespread adoption has really transformed the way that researchers can share data with each other, can do outreach, can look inside fossils and see features that they wouldn't have a chance of, of studying in detail 30, 40, 50 years ago. That combination is such a powerful like flywheel that's really driven the field forward. I got into this, I guess, as a kid. I was babysitting at Fort Riley, and the family I babysat for had the Time Life series on dinosaurs. Their children went to Betterly, and I spent the evening, and I was just totally absorbed. It was the first time I'd really encountered them. And... You know, the range, the uniqueness, the degree to which they're different from us and from our world. And I guess I've never gotten over that love of paleontology in the broadest sense and just fascination with the evolution of life. So when you then get to the modern era, I went off and got a PhD in history, but then I got reengaged. I think it was Bacher who wrote a book on the dinosaur heresies and pointed mm -hmm. out that Prior to Ostrom at Yale, 
making the argument that dinosaurs and birds were absolutely related. It was considered heresy. I mean, people just said that wasn't possible. But suddenly there was enough evidence that it revolutionized both our thinking about birds, but also in many ways our thinking about dinosaurs. And that got me intrigued with this whole notion of how much we are evolving. And then, of course, when you get to the, the Chinese feathered dinosaurs, you know, we've had Archaeopteryx as sort of a semi-bird, semi-reptile. But mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you now have clear evidence that dinosaurs had feathers. And that further kind of revolutionized how we had thought of them. Uh, does it ever strike you that, that almost every day you turn around, there's something new showing up? It's such a fun surprise, always. I mean, it's interesting. This just reminds me of a conversation I had actually just yesterday with one of the sources in the story, uh, Yale professor Anjan Buller. At risk of poorly paraphrasing him, because he's a very poetic speaker, you know, he sees the study of paleontology as really kind of telling this sort of epic narrative of the history of life on Earth in that great narrative of who we are and how we got here, dinosaurs are among the most important players on land. I mean, they were ecologically dominant for 140 plus million years. Today, they're still the most diverse group of terrestrial vertebrates in the form of birds. And what's fascinating about paleontology is that we can only see these sort of glimmers, these fragments of the story, and we have to try to you know, stitch together and make sense of it as best we can. And so every time we look into the past, every time we find a new fossil or come up with a new way to learn something new from an old fossil, that narrative deepens and becomes more complex. I mean, in the context of feathered dinosaurs, at this point, it's very clear that flight evolved multiple times independently within dinosaurs, not just within the line that eventually yielded birds, which raises all sorts of interesting questions about the kind of the evolutionary drivers to flight, the precursors to flight, the environmental conditions that kind of sow the seeds for that. It's such a fascinating thing. So yeah, I completely agree. Isn't there a belief now that part of the dinosaur family learned how to fly four different times? There wasn't this magic moment and then flight became universal, but rather at different times, different animals tried it out, ranging from gliding like the modern squirrel might glide to gradually learning how to actually get in the air or how to climb up on top of a tree and then glide your way to the next tree. The range of evolution is extraordinary. I mentioned to you that I went over to the National Geographic Museum. It's a fascinating small but brilliantly done collection covering a wide range of things. At one point, they had a Spinosaurus there. And Spinosaurus is, in some ways, I think one of the most intriguing of the dinosaurs because it is, on the one hand, it's very big, but it's very strange with the huge spine on the back and the very long snout, almost like a gavial or fish-eating crocodile. And apparently, in the last three or four years, there's been a real revolution and how we think about how Spinosaurus survived. Can you sort of describe the dramatic change in how we now think about Spinosaurus? Absolutely. Spinosaurus is this really enigmatic, mysterious, large predatory dinosaur that lived in North Africa about 95 to 100 million years ago. 
the original fossils that were used to define Spinosaurus were destroyed in World War II. So that's been a big kind of question mark ever since. The big debate has hinged on how Spinosaurus lived in regards to the water. Different parts of its anatomy, as you pointed out, this very sort of gharial-like snout, other aspects of its anatomy, led many researchers to be comfortable that this is an animal that was eating fish at least part of the time, and that it was part of a group of dinosaurs, the Spinosaurids, that ate fish, among other things, perhaps wading in the shallows like a heron or a stork or something like that. But there's a skeleton that's coming out of southeastern Morocco, excavated by a team led by National Geographic explorer Nizar Ibrahim, where Ibrahim and his colleagues are making the case that this was far from just a heron or a stork on the shallows. This was an animal that was swimming in the water that was about as close to a river monster as a dinosaur could get. This remains contentious, and there is ongoing back and forth among paleontologists, but the new fossils coming out of Morocco are adding fuel to this debate in a way that we haven't really seen in decades, which has been tremendously exciting for the field. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. I was surprised to learn that possibly the largest fossil market in the world is actually in Morocco. That the people collect all across the Sahara and show up at this one town 
and it's a routine kind of thing to go there and find various fossils, not just dinosaurs, but across the board. But, you know, when you look at Spinosaurus and you start to think about the whole way life evolves, there have been consistent going back to the water to find fish and other prey. I mean, the phytosaurs early on and the crocodiles actually stabilize and they're right there next to the dinosaurs. They survived the asteroid and they're still here. And they haven't changed much in a couple hundred million years because it turned out to be a really successful kind of design. So they just drift along being crocodilian. And it's intriguing to me how you get these different kind of patterns of what survives, what doesn't survive, what flourishes. And it goes all the way back to the beginning with the dinosaurs where in the early Triassic, the fact is that the mammal-like reptiles were much more dominant and the dinosaurs were very you know, tiny, scattered, not very important. And then suddenly there's an explosion. Do you have any idea why paleontologists, have they begun to figure out why did this explosion occur? Why do you suddenly, in the mid to late Triassic, get this dominance of the dinosaurs, which prior to that had been a relatively small niche in life? There's a couple things going on here. I mean, there's been a lot of work recently at field sites all over the world to try to fill in as much of that early diversity as possible. As you point out, the ecosystems in the early Triassic, so for reference, this is about 230 million years ago, look very different from the ones in the early Jurassic, or let's call it 200 million years ago. There's some some major turnover there. In part, this is going to draw back to kind of what's going on biogeographically. That is to say, you have Pangaea and then kind of the breakup of Pangaea beginning in the Jurassic and later. That's playing a role. Pangaea is all the continents coming together as one continent, right? Yes, it's one supercontinent. All the land masses that we have today all jumbled up together in a big old mess. It's also worth you know, highlighting that there's a mass extinction event about 205 million years ago at the end of the Triassic, where a lot of the diversity that you alluded to earlier with these crocodilians, these crocodilian relatives, were quite diverse throughout the Triassic, and many go extinct by the end of the Triassic, early Jurassic. But part of what's interesting, too, is Paleontologists are finding more of these early dinosaur cousins. Like if one scampered by us on the trail, we'd be like, that's a dinosaur. But in the finer anatomical details, it isn't quite a dinosaur, more of a quote-unquote dinosaur morph. And so researchers are finding more of these creatures and further back. And so it's possible that that sort of short, sharp, like, profusion of dinosaurs in the late Triassic, when you actually get the full fossil record, that might not be as like dramatic an explosion as it currently looks. Certainly, though, I mean, by the late Triassic, there's a big extinction event that kind of sets the scene for dinosaurs to really diversify going into the early Jurassic. So they're filling up all the spaces that have been vacated by species that have gone extinct during, I think it was a volcanic series. It was indeed, yeah. The end Triassic mass extinction, the current thinking is that this was due to abrupt warming from 
what was called the Central Atlantic Magmatic Province, which was this big volcanic complex in kind of central Pangaea, more or less, kind of split now between like West Africa and South America and parts of North America, kind of when all that was together, there was sort of this profound injection of greenhouse gases and that that was enough to put pressure on global ecosystems and cause this sort of faunal turnover. When you go into the early Jurassic, it's a fascinating narrative. When I was young, we were in a cycle where dinosaurs were thought to be reptile-like, and so they would have had limited ability to use oxygen, and they were yep. shot much like lizards. Ironically, mm -hmm. in the original 19th century portraits, they were actually shown to be very aggressive and very much closer to mammal-like. And then we went into this cycle of being like reptiles who can't really sustain activity very long. We have, for example, the famous paintings of T-Rex with its tail on the ground. Now, for some reason, and I'm not sure whether this was Ostrom or who had the breakthrough, but suddenly people thought, you know, that wouldn't work right. I remember being with Jack Horner at the Museum of the Rockies, and he was showing mm. me the growth rings of an ostrich and a triceratops. And they were clearly growing at a rate which could not be sustained if they were reptiles. And we now believe that they grow unbelievably fast from birth to relatively full size. And then I was out at the Monterey Aquarium. They have a tuna research facility. And tuna are the one fish who have the functional equivalent of being warm-blooded. Their muscular structure is such that they can generate their own heat. And so I've often been thinking about this whole transition, and I don't know what insight it was that led people to move from sort of dinosaur as reptile to dinosaur as warm-blooded or the equivalent of warm-blooded in their ability to use oxygen and move. And I think we now believe that they also may have had multiple places, much like birds do, to store oxygen or to store air so that they could actually generate much, much more energy than you would have thought if they were, say, a lizard. Do you know how that breakthrough occurred? Because I don't. Well, I think one of the things that's really exciting about where we're at now is that researchers are really getting a firmer grasp on the full diversity of metabolism that dinosaurs had. And the ways that they're doing that are really cool. So it's certainly true that like bird line dinosaurs and modern birds had really high metabolism and that there was this synergistic relationship between smaller body size and metabolic efficiency and metabolic rate. I think part of what's interesting here too is large dinosaurs, just by dint of their volume to their surface area, the bigger you are, the less effective you are at losing your body heat. In fact, on the largest of dinosaurs, there was evolutionary pressure to basically have AC systems built into their skulls so they could just dump heat out of their blood before it got to the brain and caused problems there. So that's probably one of the many factors that's driving gigantism in some lines of dinosaurs. I had the opportunity to be at Drake in Philadelphia and see mm -hmm. the, the type specimen, which was on loan from Argentina, of what I think is the largest dinosaur we've found so far. Part of what fascinates people about dinosaurs is you're talking about animals that 
could weigh more than 110,000 pounds, six or seven elephants in one dinosaur. Why do you think they got that big? There's been a lot of recent research trying to flesh out the details here. But one of the factors, particularly among herbivores, is the efficiency of fermentation. I mean, I've talked to some researchers that analogize the large sauropods, these large long-necked dinosaurs you're referring to, as basically vacuum cleaners on stilts. Fermentation is how these animals were unlocking nutrients from the plant matter they were eating. And that fermentation becomes more efficient, basically the bigger the tank you have. And this might be one of the reasons why there is selective pressure for gigantism in some of these lines of plant-eating dinosaurs. I've previously covered an armored dinosaur that's found in northern Alberta called Borealopelta Mark Micheli. It's at the Royal Tyrrell Museum of Paleontology. It's basically the front half of an armored dinosaur, like preserved in 3D. It's amazing. But one of the things that's really striking is when you walk up to Borealopelta, it's just how wide these dinosaurs were. I mean, they could have fit a lot of plant matter in their guts. These things were basically fermentation tanks on still walking around. One of the many contributing factors to like gigantism and dinosaur herbivores appears to be this sort of fermentation efficiency angle. One of the things that enables that gigantism too is just general growth patterns. And the more we find of these late Triassic relatives of sauropods, these close cousins, there was more than one way that these animals could get big in terms of the timing of their growth spurts, in terms of the overall trajectory of their growth, in terms of the way that their limbs sat beneath them. There was a lot of evolutionary experimentation, but clearly there was a lot of pressure to get big and to get big quick. Do you think that was in reaction to what was happening with plants at that time, that there were there was an explosion of plants that made it more desirable to be able to absorb huge volume and ferment it? It's a good question. I'm not sure, to be honest with you. Certainly, to sustain animals that large efficiently, you need incredible amounts of plant material kind of at the base of the food chain. I don't know enough off the top of my head about sort of plant evolution in the early Mesozoic. What's really interesting, though, on this topic is looking at patterns of life more broadly in the Cretaceous period, so starting about 145 million years ago, and what starts to happen to ecosystems once flowering plants come online. There's some fabulous work on this looking at the fossil record and the fossil insect record, which is an amazing look into how ecosystems in the Cretaceous period are transforming alongside dinosaurs as flowering plants come to the fore. So, I mean, essentially this symbiotic relationship where as the plants change, the animals that live off the plants change, and then the animals that live off, the animals that live off the plants change. So gigantism in herbivores leads, in a sense, to gigantism in predators. Yeah, absolutely. In that sense, 
our understanding of, for example, for T-Rex and other top predators, they were much faster than we used to think. They had much greater ability to ambush predators and to move against larger dinosaurs. I'm not sure that even a T-Rex took on the very largest of the sauropods, just because their ability to whip their tail at basically supersonic speeds was so dangerous. I've talked to paleontologists in the past about how did the largest of the sauropods, how did they fit into the food web? Some of them have pointed out that like when an old large sauropod died, it would have been the equivalent to a whale fall at the bottom of the ocean. You know, when that happens in oceans today, the ocean floor ecosystem, it's a great feast. It's a big party and scavengers of all types of all sizes come out. So you probably would have had some of that with the largest of the sauropods. In terms of overall kind of predator speed and agility, it's really interesting to see this perspective refined among the tyrannosaurs. So I think at this point, the scholarly consensus on T-Rex is that a gifted human sprinter would have been able to outrun a T-Rex. But you also don't necessarily need to move super fast to pursue prey for long periods. One of the things that's very clear, though, from the Tyrannosaur fossil record and the broader group of Tyrannosaurs and their immediate cousins is that they were very agile. They were very efficient walkers. They could move very easily. And that kind of ability to move efficiently, they could pursue prey for long periods of time. So seeing all this research, we're likely going to see an even more fine-grained reconstruction of how T-Rex and other predators moved how herbivores could move along the lines of exactly what you were saying with sauropods. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. 
So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. The very same time that one group of dinosaurs is getting bigger, another group is getting smaller as they move towards the ability to fly. So you sort of have dinosaurs filling every possible niche, like feathered flight, which leads to the notion that, in fact, dinosaurs never disappeared because they're flying around outside my window, which was a real revolution. As a good example of how science works, how did the revolution that came back to believing that dinosaurs and birds were relatives, how did that occur? Very early in the evolutionary discussions back in the 1800s. Some of this came up then, but it fell out of favor. And this really kind of kicks off, and you alluded to him, John Ostrom, this Yale paleontologist, found a dinosaur in Western North America called Deinonychus. You have these bird-like features in Deinonychus. The overall build of the animal is that of sort of this agile predator. And it's got a lot of these key avian or bird-like features. So Deinonychus really kind of sets the stage for this. And as you alluded to, Ostrom and his protege, Bob Bakker, really advanced this case that dinosaurs were agile, they had higher metabolisms, they weren't just sort of these slow, dopey, lumbering giants that kind of shuffle off at the end of the Mesozoic. The thing that really kind of blows this wide open is all of the work coming out of China, these really important fossil sites that preserve plain as day feathered dinosaurs. That's been transformative. And what's really cool is that that has filled in a really compelling picture of the evolution of flight. I mean, feathers didn't evolve initially for the purpose of flight. They were an existing kind of trait that evolution then acted on in a way that then conferred flight. So they originally evolved maybe as like signaling, maybe as thermal structure to help with insulation. And you see that in the fossil record. Some of these early critters with these sort of very kind of filamenty, almost kind of hair-like feathers. But then as evolution acts on that, and as there's this push toward flight, you eventually see the kinds of asymmetric veined feathers that we would recognize today on the wings of birds. Only you see them, you know, in the fossil record well more than 100 million years ago. That progression, based on the discovery of new fossil material over a period of decades, really solidifies this view that birds aren't just descendants of dinosaurs. No, they are theropod dinosaurs. They are as much a dinosaur as T. rex, triceratops, brachiosaurus. They're still with us today. Kind of breakthroughs you're discovering, though, the ability to look at individual feathers. How much of that was mm-hmm. a function 
of the new technologies and our ability to go back and look at fossils we already have, but suddenly see mm-hmm. them in totally different ways. Certainly, new technologies have enabled researchers to go back and look at past fossils in a new light. You know, I think about, for instance, you mentioned Archaeopteryx earlier, discovered in Germany in the early 1860s. There's the body fossils of Archaeopteryx, but the original fossil of Archaeopteryx is actually an isolated feather. The original fossil named Archaeopteryx lithographica. So there's been modern work to be able to go back to that feather and look at the pigmentation in that feather and to actually say something about what color it was, which is just sort of a wild advance that's really blossomed in the last couple of decades. It was matte black, by the way. That's the current thinking. For some of these fossils, too, in all likelihood, there were feathered dinosaurs that were found decades ago, not necessarily just in China, but elsewhere. But paleontologists lacked what's called the search image. They didn't know what they were looking for. And something could be, you know, oh, well, it's just an organic ring. Maybe it's just plant material. And there's interest in getting down to the bones because that's where there's so much of that important anatomical information. And so without really knowing, you just kind of blow right through these feathers. Now paleontologists know that they're there and are a lot more careful in making sure that they don't you know, just prepare straight through them and they can preserve them for future chemical and imaging study. When you look ahead, do you see the field just continuing to accelerate? Do you expect to have even more breakthroughs and greater advances in our understanding of life in the Mesozoic? Yeah, absolutely. When I talk to researchers, today is sort of a golden age of paleontology, but they're also so excited for what's to come. For one, there's going to be new fossil material that's going to be found. Who knows what that's going to be? I love a good surprise, <laughs> paleontologist. So that's always going to be exciting. And then there are these new and interesting techniques that are coming online to analyze old fossils in new ways. I mean, I think on the chemistry front, this is going to be incredible. There's work in the last couple of decades looking into whether things like proteins can fossilize. If so, how? How altered did they become? And when you've got this sort of altered protein dino schmutz in your fossil, what can you learn from it? Early signs are that in some cases, this might preserve things like egg color. It might preserve things like metabolism. You could use this as a signal to build evolutionary family trees and figure out how different groups are related to each other. Who knows what the future holds there? But I think that's really profoundly exciting to be able to look at the bone of an animal that lived and died more than 100 million years ago and say something meaningful about how it lived day to day, what its metabolism was like. I mean, that's such a profound kind of collision of past and present. So if Spielberg were doing Jurassic Park today, how would it Mm -hmm. be different given all the discoveries of the last 25 years? Great question. Well, I think you'd see a lot more feathers. (laughs) I love the Jurassic Park and Jurassic World movies. That is a consistent sticking point for me, though. If you're going to do the, the Jurassic Park reboot, I think 
you could come up with a different kind of origin story for like how you get the dinosaurs. In all likelihood, DNA doesn't fossilize well kind of past a couple million years or so. So I think it's unlikely we're going to get sort of the drill into a mosquito scenario that we saw beautifully in the film. But there is a ton of incredible work to understand kind of the developmental biology that underpins modern living things and fossil ones. For instance, Anjan Buller, the Yale professor I alluded to earlier, is doing research on like quails and chickens and turtles and geckos to try to figure out kind of the basic processes that govern how the face is formed. And a couple years ago, figured out kind of the key genetic processes by which you get either a beak or kind of a snout that looks a lot like a dinosaur snout. If Spielberg were doing Jurassic Park from scratch today, I would say, you know, you get dinosaurs by studying the fundamental developmental biology of all of these dinosaur relatives, right? Birds, crocodilians, reptiles more generally, combining that with the fossil record and then sort of reverse engineering the genetics of what it takes to build something that looks like a dinosaur. We're on that trajectory, at least to learn those things, not necessarily to build a chicken saurus. That's a separate conversation entirely. That's wild, though. That's amazing. I just want to say that I think the work you did in this particular edition of National Geographic is terrific. And I have a hunch you're going to have a lot more to report on over the next 10 or 20 years as we have more paleontologists in more places with better technologies. And I'm very grateful that you would take this kind of time out of your busy schedule to share with a different kind of audience all the different things that are happening with dinosaurs and also to hopefully convince a good number of them to visit natgeo.com slash dinos and see what you actually have done on reporting on dinosaurs. I really appreciate, Michael, you're taking this time to be with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to my guest, Michael Greshko. You can read more about new dinosaur discoveries and get a link to Michael's cover story on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.